I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GOAT team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legends of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, my friend, how are you today? I know that you are not in the Boston area. You've snuck away under COVID-19 stealth to uh, some wonderful place on the western side of Massachusetts. I hope you're having fun. I am having fun. It's different than the four walls that I'm trapped in, but I'm also up here in the hills. The Berkshires of western Massachusetts this time of year are absolutely gorgeous. And But one of the things that I'm not too happy with is the number of trees that are turning red and yellow. Yeah. It's only yeah, well, September it's 1. Fall's coming soon. Yep. Yeah, it's going to be early this year. Well, we've had a great day in Colorado. This, this morning was absolutely gorgeous because uh, we had a front move through, and, of course, the front blew out all the smoke. Well, guess what? The smoke is back. So it's a little hazy this afternoon, but we did get snow on the highest peaks. Oh. So, yeah, while fall is uh, coming to your neck of the woods, winter is starting to show up in my neck of the woods. But you know what? I don't mind it. We had about 70 days of 90-degree temperatures over the summer, and I think everybody is kind of ready for maybe the cold weather to get people out since COVID-19 seem to thrive under the heat, <laughs> contrary to what everybody said, that, oh, yeah, the heat will kill it. So maybe the cold will kill it. Who knows? But I'm glad that you're enjoying yourself and you're well, and um, I'm getting ready to travel, as I usually do. So I'm glad that we're able to do another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I think that, that we've gotten some really good responses, John. I mean, the emails that we get have been great. I want to thank all of our listeners who have sent us emails and John and I try to respond to them all, but well, I want to thank the listeners for sending in their thoughts on the mask discussion that we had with regard to whether or not you take your personal mask off before you put the passenger mask on and whether airlines are actually briefing that or not. I just got another email today from somebody that flies for Air New Zealand and chiming in. So we do appreciate our listeners around the world that, you know, support our show. You know, we're trying to make it better. And with your input, we're doing just that. So thank you very much. So I know that you're out there in the middle of nowhere, John, with nothing else to do except peruse accidents. That's right. And I, I'm doing a lot of work on uh, weather-related accidents for GA pilots. And uh, I'll be sending you material for that pretty soon. But today, I thought we would take it easy on you and talk about an accident that you actually did 30 years ago. Not quite 30 years ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. That's the Heinz accident in near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yep. And that was another one that never should have happened. But why don't we talk about that a little? Because there was a lot of interesting facts in the NTSB report. And I remember having conversations with you in the past about this and... There was a lot of things that didn't make the report. Yeah, this was an accident, John, that occurred. It was uh, Piper Aerostar being used on a Part 135 charter certificate by a company called Lycoming Air Services out of Williamsport, and they were transporting Senator Heinz. Now, those people that don't know who Senator Heinz is or was, he is, he was one of the heirs to the Heinz food company 
conglomerate. So uh, he was in line to take over and have a lot of money and that kind of stuff. But he was a senator and he was using this particular service, which he used on a regular basis, to go to Philadelphia and places around the state. And on this particular day, it was a short flight. He was just hopping a ride over to Philadelphia to participate in some meetings and that kind of stuff. Like you said, it was a tragic accident because it was just a series of very simple errors. And pilots in both aircraft, because this was a mid-air collision between a fixed wing, this Piper Aerostar, and a large corporate type helicopter a bell 412 sp which it was outfitted as a as a business aircraft it was a, a heavy helicopter as they call it has a four blade rotor system you see them running up and down the east coast quite a bit especially in the new york washington boston corridor where a lot of companies will use these types of helicopters to transport executives either to and from facilities or office buildings or even to their corporate hangars and that kind of stuff. And so this was one of those accidents where you had two different type of aircraft and two sets of pilots trying to do something that was really beyond the skill level of both crew members, that is both sets of crews. And I got launched because I was working out of the New York office at the time. I got launched on this particular accident. So I was really the first one on scene from the NTSB to stake down the wreckage and the accident scene. And the GO team was launching out of Washington at the time. And then I was asked to stay on and assist the GO team at that time in the investigation of this accident. So it ended up being one of those accidents where because of the location where the wreckage came down made it even more tragic. So why don't you just ask me some questions? You know, one of the big things with this was that, like I said, you know, the airplane took off. Now, there's a bit of a backstory with this Lycoming Air Service because they were a charter operator out of Williamsport. They did have a number of issues in their operation stemming from both the FAA and the FAA's oversight, as well as the quality of the pilots that had been flying for this particular operation. And during the board's investigation, they really got into some of the issues that created safety of flight concerns, some of which the board believes, based on their analysis of the facts, condition, and circumstances, may have led to some bad decision-making on the part of the two crew members that were flying this Piper Aerostar because they had a mechanical problem, or at least it was a belie- believed to be a mechanical problem. And so they were soliciting help from a corporate helicopter that was being flown by Sun Company Aviation, their aviation department, when in fact they should have, one, never asked for the help, two, didn't need the help, and we'll talk about why. And three, even if there was a problem with the nose gear, which was the focus of, of this particular sequence of events, anybody that's ever flown a Piper Aerostar or knows anything about a Piper Aerostar knows that it's a very low-slung airplane. That is, when it's sitting on the ramp on its main gear and its nose wheel, the front end of that airplane sits about two feet off the ground. And even if you have a nose wheel collapse, the airplane, when it settles on its nose, on the on the skin, you're only dropping two feet. You're going to, you know, damage the doors and that kind of stuff. But it's not like if you collapse the gear on a 737 or, or even a King Air or some of these other corporate-type airplanes that have long, longer stem or struts as far as their landing gear are concerned. So all of these little things started to come into play to form the basis for this unfortunate big accident. You know, I've been on uh, two airplanes that had gear that indicated they didn't come down. And uh, one was a nose gear and one was a main gear. And on the nose gear one, both of them were on Douglas products. One was a straight DC-930 and the other was an MD-80 type for the main gear. And in fact, on the nose gear, the, my seatmate wasn't happy with me because I was half asleep most of the flight. 
and she woke me up because they made the announcement that the nose gear didn't come down. And uh, I said, no, it's not, no big deal, because I talked to her early and told her it's a mechanic. I said, no big deal. I turned over and went back to sleep. <laughs> was she mad at me? Well, yeah. <laughs> but I've seen uh, DC-9s and 727s and others in 747 with nose gears that didn't come down, and they landed them. And just what you said, the gear doors take a hell of a beating. And if they you know, come in fast and the runway's long, you might d destroy the gear doors and get some of this belly skin on no around the nose gear. But it's not a big deal. Main gear is a little different story. But the nose gear is uh, not a big deal to land with. You still have braking. You can still control the airplane straight ahead. Yeah. And, and in this particular instance with the Aerostar, I mean, it's really not... I mean, you put the airplane down on its nose, the nose gear collapses. Like I said, you're only dropping a couple of feet, so it's not like you're going to slam the front end of this airplane down. And it's just sad because... There were ways for the pilot to check to determine. Now, the gear was down. It just, he couldn't make a determination whether it was locked. And that's where the story really starts. Because they took off, and the takeoff and in-route portion of the flight from Williamsport to Philadelphia was normal. Everything was good to go. They were cleared to execute a uh, ILS approach to runway 17. And during the course of uh, executing the approach and putting the landing gear down, the crew, and in this particular instance, uh, like we talked about earlier, normally a lot of times there's charter companies flying small airplanes that are single pilot approved. Some charter companies will just fly with that single pilot. Others will ask the passenger, hey, do you want one pilot or two pilots? And a lot of times they'll fly with two pilots. And while we didn't really ferret out when we were doing the investigation why there were two pilots on this airplane, even though this airplane didn't need it, it's likely because of who the passenger was, Senator Heinz, they had two pilots. And uh, the captain on this particular airplane had just become a captain, just got his PIC qualifications for flying charter about a month before. He only had about 1,500 hours total flight time or 1,900 hours total flight time. And so he was relatively inexperienced in this particular airplane. And then as a pilot in command, very inexperienced when it comes to being the authority pilot in this particular operation. But during the course of executing this ILS approach, the gear came down because he could see. And anybody that's flown a, a Piper Aerostar, one of the ways you check to see if the landing gear is down is you look in the propeller spinner. The propeller spinners sit just outside the left and right windows, forward windows. So you can look in the propeller spinner and actually see the reflection of the landing gear. And that's what they did. They saw that the gear was hanging, but they didn't get an indication in the cockpit whether or not the nose landing gear had locked into position or not. So they abandoned the approach and started flying around trying to troubleshoot and figure out what they could do. Well, there was a uh, helicopter that was on the same frequency listening to this conversation, and they had just departed out of Philadelphia, heading west. They heard the discussion going on, and being the, quote, good neighbors that they were, and they had done things uh, for the local police departments, fire departments, and that kind of stuff when they weren't flying passengers trying to assist. So they heard the two pilots on that particular aircraft, very seasoned guys, both with about 8,000 hours of experience, total time, and a lot of helicopter time, hear this, this discussion going on. And they said, hey, we just took off. You know, we'll be happy to go over and take a look. So by that, they meant we'll be happy to go fly near this airplane and see if we can see whether or not this landing gear is completely down and locked. In the midst of then agreeing to join up with the Piper Aerostar, the air traffic controller said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fly an extended downwind pattern while you do your maneuvering to check this landing gear. And oh, by the way, the flight path that you're flying, there's some big tall towers out there they're about six miles ahead of you. So just keep an eye on those while you're doing your thing and then tell me how things work out for you. So the Aerostar pilot picks up a heading in an altitude of about 1,500 feet. and They're heading towards these towers and the um, helicopter pilots attempt to then 
join. That is, they weren't necessarily going to fly formation. This wasn't a predetermined formation flight. All they were going to try and do is get in close proximity to the Aerostar, fly under the Aerostar, and see if they could observe the position of the nose wheel. Well, John, you've worked on airplanes like this, and in this particular instance, because the nose wheel on this airplane is very low slung, it doesn't stick very far out or down below the gear doors, all of the locking mechanism, the over-center scissors and all that kind of stuff, they're all up in the wheel well, so there's no way to see them anyway. It's hard enough to see them on the ground, let alone trying to fly under it and look up underneath the aircraft. What would ever take another crewman to think that he could do that, especially with a helicopter, but even with a fixed-wing airplane? That's crazy. Well, that was a big issue that was dissected by the safety board when it came to decision-making on the part of both flight crews. Now, here's the kicker. This helicopter, being substantially bigger than the Aerostar, of course, you got this large rotor system out there. So as they joined up on the Aerostar from the left initially, they're trying to fly underneath and look from the left. Well, what we found when we talked to the company was that because this aircraft, this helicopter was used for IFR flights, and you have strobe lights on the aircraft, that you would get flickering vertigo through the rotor system if you had the strobes on when you're flying IFR. So what they did was they painted the eyebrow windows. Those are the windows that are just above the pilot's head. You see them a lot on Boeing airplanes and, and other airplanes, but on this helicopter, they had eyebrow windows. Well, because of this flickering vertigo effect, they decided to paint those windows. So now the pilots can't really look up through those windows because they're blacked out. So you could only look through the top of the forward windscreen, which again would require the pilots in the helicopter to fly closer to the Aerostar to get that same perspective. And so it's these little, these little idiosyncrasies, these little things, the backstories that really set this sequence of events up. So they had joined them from the left side and then backed off and then them from the right side. And this is where trouble happened because when they all they could confirm was that the gear was down, but they couldn't confirm that it was locked. And as they were then deciding to separate and go their different ways, this is when the accident happened. Now, the radar data was any all that we had, and we knew what the flight path was, and we know what the impact marks were, but we don't know the sequence of events, whether or not as the helicopter was moving away from the fixed-wing airplane from underneath, whether they turned and as they turned the rotor system struck the bottom of the airplane or as the helicopter was flying above the fixed or below the fixed wing, the fixed wing descended down into the rotor system. All we know is that they came together, the rotor system got into the aft end of the aircraft and a portion, the, the forward section of, of the Aerostar, and bad things happened. It started raining wreckage down, and it happened to be over top of Lower Marion Township, and the accident, the collision itself happened right over an elementary school. And the hardest part of this investigation was the fact that the two pilots and Senator Heinz on the Aerostar were killed when the wreckage for that airplane came slamming down right in front of the school, right in the, in the parking lot area, right in front of the school. The helicopter ended up coming down in their open field where they have recess and there were kids out there during the course of the school day when the wreckage came down. And both pilots on the helicopter were killed, but two kids were killed on the playground. Several others were injured from flying debris. One was seriously burnt. And it brings a different perspective when we as investigators show up, especially in a situation like that where you have grieving parents 
you have the fact that there were a lot of kids out there. The fortunate thing is more people, kids, adults were not injured or killed. But it was a, a very tragic scene that we had to work in because it was at this elementary school. And that's actually where we set up our command post while we were working was we were using the school facility to begin all of the on-scene activities of documenting the wreckage. Boy, that must have been painful. It really was, John, because we're, you know, uh, the duties that I was tasked to do, I had to go track down witnesses. I had to go find a lot of the debris because it rained down over a very large area. And just going from house to house and talking to people and the school is surrounded by a neighborhood and, you know, everybody knows everybody. And it was just, it was very heartbreaking, but you know that you got to mentally focus. You have to compartmentalize what you're doing because if you get emotionally attached, you can't do your job and you go in with the mindset kind of like a coroner or, you know, investigators, you know, detectives. And that is you've got to do your job and do it well so that you can prevent something from happening again. That's what you owe the public. And and so it's hard, you know, because you, you do have a lot of emotions flowing through there. And especially when the parents and everybody's coming out to grieve these kids that were killed by debris. So, yeah, it was a it was a very difficult, emotionally trying accident scene to work for a week. But we've seen this, John. You've been there. You know, I mean, it is and it is one of those tough things. And but, you know, you work through it because you're going to try. I mean, the end game is how are we going to prevent this from happening so that you and I don't have to go to accident scenes like that anymore. Yeah, that's how you pull yourself through these things. Most people don't realize it, that the, uh, at the end of every day when the investigators get together and the adrenaline is slowed down, the emotional pain starts to pick up. Yep. You can't be human and see what we saw routinely and not have it have an effect upon you. Yep, exactly. One of the things that we started looking at, of course, was the human factors element of this accident. The fact that the two crew members on the Aerostar, the captain himself, very inexperienced as far as total time, new to the the charter operation, if you will, but neither of those pilots had any kind of background or experience in formation flying or even flying in close proximity to another aircraft. Yeah, as I, as I looked through the report, Greg, I was taken, I took notice of the fact that the pilot, the captain on the Aerostar, was handling both the radios and the flying. Yep. And and then you look at the time of the uh, of the uh, first officer in type on the airplane, and it was very very low. Yeah. And you wonder if this pilot ended up being a a, a single pilot operation with no help from the first officer. Well, you, you bring up a good point, John. I mean, the whole reason to have two pilots on an airplane, one, the pilot flying, that is, it could be either the guy in the left seat or the right seat. So if it is the pilot in the left seat, okay, I'll handle the flying duties. John, you handle all the radio stuff. Normally, you're splitting duties, sharing duties, and then, of course, the non-flying pilot is monitoring. So not only is he trying to run checklist and troubleshoot and do all those things in this particular instance, but then when this crew decided to allow the helicopter to fly in close proximity, you're depending on another set of eyes to figure out what's going on, what they're doing. Unfortunately, because this airplane, it's a fixed-wing aircraft, and the helicopter is below them and slightly behind them, they couldn't see the proximity of that helicopter to their airplane. So they didn't really know what was going on below them and behind them. But like you said, it is weird that you got this guy, you know, is he a control freak? Is he used to just flying single pilot? That's why he was doing the flying and talking on the radio rather than shedding some of that to the first officer. Yes. He didn't have any confidence in him probably was part of it. 
But it's all speculation on our part to say anything like that. Oh, sure. And the board talked about it in the report because they said, you know, there is a possibility that they were trading the pilot duties, the flying duties and that kind of stuff. But because that airplane is not equipped, nor is it required to be equipped with a flight data recorder and a cockpit voice recorder, we'll never know that. But it was noted that here you got a guy who's the captain is also talking on the radio because he had a propensity to be the flying pilot. So Yeah, and he's also the troubleshooter on top of it. Yep. Too much, too much going on. What time? And then the concern about what's going on with this airplane close to him, below him, and behind him, maybe. With the rotor blades as large as they are and a bell, those must be 60 feet in total. Yeah. So, I mean, he could be behind them and still have rotor blade impact if they make the wrong move. Yeah, and that's the other thing is in order to get a good perspective up into that nose wheel area, you have to be close and you have to be basically directly underneath the helicopter. Again, because these guys don't have the eyebrow windows to look through, you know, they're going to have to get a, a different perspective out of the forward windscreen. And you're sucking a lot of air through that rotor system. And if you're in close proximity, you know, is there an issue where you're flying in disturbed air because you're flying in, in the wake of a fixed-wing airplane? Do you have rotor issues? Do you have that smooth airflow? Because helicopters depend on those rotors to create lift, and you have to have smooth airflow just like or relatively smooth air going over those rotor blades, similar to a wing, because when you disturb that airflow, that's when you lose proficiency of the wing itself, whether it's a rotor blade because it's shaped like a wing or the actual wing of a fixed-wing airplane. And next thing you know, the aircraft starts to descend a bit uncontrolled. Is there maneuverability issues and things like that? So all of these things were looked at from the perspective of what caused either the helicopter to get into the fixed wing or what caused the fixed wing to get into the rotor system of the helicopter. Yeah, unfortunately, we'll never know. Yeah, all we know is, unfortunately, the result, which was catastrophic. But, you know, some of the notable things with this, John, besides the crew and, and looking at their particular experience, the the safety board, when the ops guys went in and started interviewing the helicopter aviation department folks, they found that, you know, very experienced guys. Unfortunately, though, these guys, the two pilots on the helicopter, also, they didn't have any experience flying formation or flying in close proximity. So now you have two crew members in two different aircraft that are trying to do something that they really don't have any experience doing it. They're doing it under, I won't say adverse circumstances, but this isn't a planned event. It was one of those, hey, I just happen to be here. I'll, I'll be happy to look at the gear for you, you know, spontaneous kinds of, of acts and with no preparation and, and the fact that they weren't communicating with each other. That was the other thing that we found during the course of the investigation is that the, the two pilots weren't talking to each other. Okay, what are you doing? Where are you? Okay, this is my heading. This is my altitude. I'm going to hold it here. Where are you? You should have had a lot of discussion going on, and there was little to none that took place. And we looked at that from the, the safety board's standpoint. We looked at that as being a big issue because, again, now you're working in an environment where one pilot in the helicopter or both pilots in the helicopter don't know what's going on in the fixed wing and vice versa. Yeah, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. Good intentions on the part of the helicopter crew, but they didn't have all the tools that they needed to accomplish what they thought they could. And, and it's funny because the board also found that one of the uh, helicopter pilots supposedly had some familiarity with Aerostars, and, and given the fact that anybody that's been around a Piper Aerostar and definitely flown a Piper Aerostar knows that unless you get down on your hands and knees and stick your head up between those gear doors, you're not going to see the hardware on the nose wheel, and especially the down locks or to try and determine whether the, the gear is down and locked. 
Yeah, the drag link. You can't see the drag leak easily at all. And so that should have been a cue to one or both pilots, that is, the Aerostar pilot and the helicopter pilots, that it doesn't really matter. I mean, the gear was hanging, so you know it's down. Okay, great, it's down. But if you don't know if it's locked or not, okay, so what? Go do the approach, go do the landing, and if it collapses, it collapses. It is what it is. Right, you should be prepared for it. Everybody should be in the brief position. Yeah, Yep. I mean, that's why we train. And that's, I mean, there are procedures for determining whether or not the gear is down and locked. But again, it's one of those little backstory items. When the safety board folks got in and started interviewing the company, like Homing Air Services, and they're talking to the training pilots about this particular instance, two things came to light. One, pilots had never been trained to deal with this type of event. They were never examined on it as far as the emergency landing gear extension procedures. But the bigger thing is the FAA-approved flight manual had no emergency landing gear extension procedures in the place where you'd expect to find them, which is in the emergency procedures. So you go to the emergency procedures on a checklist or in the flight manual, And there is nothing that talks about how to extend the gear manually in the event that the hydraulic system fails and landing gear can't be extended. Come to find out that the extension procedures reside in a whole different area, which is in under the hydraulic system, because the landing gear is held with hydraulic uplocks. And once you put the landing gear switch down, If you have lost all your hydraulics, the gear will free fall out. And there is a way to test to determine whether or not the landing gear is actually locked, not just down, but locked. There's a couple ways to do it. They were only, they were trained to hit the press to test button, which is basically a pre-flight item where you push a little button that has light bulbs embedded in it to see if they work. That is related to the landing gear. But in this particular instance, they could have also checked the gear warning horn as well if they had just pulled the throttles back to flight idle. Because if the gear isn't down and locked, then when you pull the throttles back to flight idle, you get an unsafe or a a gear warning horn. And apparently they never did either of those things. So they really never needed this helicopter to come in and do what they did. Just a, a growing tragedy. Everywhere you look, there was, it shouldn't have happened. Yeah. And it is these little things that escalate into bigger things. And the fact that, I mean, all these guys, they were going to do, they, they were going to do a flyby of the uh, tower, you know? And again, all the tower controller was going to be able to tell them is, yep, it looks down to me. But the big question was, is it locked? That's that's what had this captain riled was, yeah, I know it's down. I can see that it's down. I'm just not getting an indication of whether or not it's locked. And that's really what got him all spooled up to, you know, do all of this other stuff, including having these guys in the helicopter try to assist in making that determination. But as we've talked, it didn't matter land the airplane. If the gear collapses, it collapses. It is what it is. Now your job is to maintain control of the airplane as you're sliding down the runway. Yeah. Did did they launch a full team on this? Yes, they did. Yep. So, and we had a board member, Susan Coughlin was the board member that came up. Yeah. We were on scene, if I remember correctly, about a week because we were trying to find all the parts because they were scattered all over the place. I was finding parts in some very unique places, you know, uh, hedgerows in front of houses. So you had to look at every house for about, I think we went four square blocks, looking at every house, front yard, backyard, looking in trees, looking in bushes, you know, looking in, you know, just nooks and crannies for parts because uh, a lot of these parts had rained down in this neighborhood. So it was uh, it was one of those very time-consuming accidents because it was essential that we find some of the critical parts, like the nose wheel and the main landing gear assemblies and tires from the Aerostar 
because when the rotor blade got into them, of course, it sheared them off and then launched them well away from the main wreckage points in the schoolyard. So we were scouring the neighborhood because we were looking for cuts and, and transfer paint transfer marks and that kind of stuff on these particular components. Yeah, point of impact, right? between the two airplanes. This, I think, was a very good accident, and people can read about it on the Internet. You pull up this accident report. The board did a really good job discussing aeronautical decision-making, or ADM. You know, ADM dates back quite a long ways, but it's really become a buzz term probably in the last 20, 25 years where it's used all the time. We see it as pilots in training. It's one of the things that we are tested on during check rides and that kind of thing. And the board did a really good job in discussing aeronautical decision-making and what may have influenced the decisions for both flight crews to have tried to do this particular operation. Some of the shortcomings, their lack of experience, the fact that their judgment was flawed based on I won't say incorrect or or inaccurate information, but it was flawed in what they believed each other could do to assist in trying to make this determination whether or not the landing gear was, in fact, locked. And the board really talked about the fact that the Piper Aerostar, and I think this was one of those statements that the board made that sticks with me in a lot of other accidents, especially mid-airs, the safety board said, the safety board concludes that after the captain of November 7-8 Sierra, that was the helicopter, made the decision to close on November 3-6-4-5 Delta, which was the Piper Aerostar, he assumed the burden of responsibility for assuring that safe separation was maintained. So soon as he made that commitment, I'm in, I'm going to come look at your, your airplane I'm going to maneuver my aircraft in close proximity to you. It was all on his shoulders not to do anything to cause any kind of of accident. And I thought that was a very powerful statement in the board's report. The shortcoming, though, was, as the board has stated, he should have communicated his intentions to the captain of the Aerostar and kept him advised of his relative position throughout the encounter. More importantly, he should have maintained sufficient distance to be able to at any time maneuver away from the Aerostar if its flight path changed. Those are powerful statements. And, you know, this comes after this tragic accident as a result of the investigative process. But these are the kinds of words that need to be heeded in a proactive way. This was written in a reactive report that is the board went out after the fact but these are the kinds of things that pilots have to think about when they determine or decide that they are going to try and do things with aircraft that either they haven't done before or they believe they can do a lot of it is because of overconfidence they have to have this in the back of the mind that if they commit to it they are taking on the responsibility for the safe outcome of that particular activity. Yes. And he had a bigger burden, too, because the helicopter flying underneath the fixed-wing airplane, out that close and personal, he, as a pilot, has no idea on what kind of impact the uh, rotor blades would have on the, on the airflow on the little airplane, on the smaller airplane. Yep, Exactly. And the board basically touched on that, again, in another great statement in the report. They said, further, the safety board believes that the impromptu in-flight inspection of the Piper Aerostar was accomplished without either flight crew assessing their potential danger or the danger to the community over which they were flying. The board criticized both these flight crew members, if they were going to try to do this, then they should have been asking ATC, hey, can you take us outside? Take us somewhere where it's not populated. Over the know, river. Sparsely populated. Over the river. Somewhere. But they did it over 
a very populated neighborhood with an elementary school and a community around it. And unfortunately, that's what really created the tragedy was, yes, it was tragic that the two flight crews and the passenger were killed, but people on the ground were killed and severely injured. Wow. Big thing with these accidents, John, and you and I are always talking about a call to action and, you know, safety recommendations and responsibilities and that kind of thing. The safety board, of course, recommended a number of things. One, that the Airman's Information Manual, which is now called the Aeronautical Information Manual, be updated to talk about flying in close proximity. If pilots are going to do this, not necessarily formation. But if they're going to be they're going to be flying in close proximity to each other for whatever reason, that they have an established plan and communication similar to if you're going to do formation flying. Of course, they also recommended the inclusion of these emergency procedures for manual extension of the landing gear be put in the appropriate place, which is in the emergency section of the manual, not buried somewhere under a systems description. They also really hit on disseminating, and this is a quote from the report, dissemination or disseminating more aggressively available information and materials pertaining to aeronautical decision-making training and actively promote its implementation among all categories of pilots in the civil aviation community. This recommendation came out in 1991. It has as much if not more application today. This is what it's all about. Everything we do in an aircraft, everything a pilot does, there is aeronautical decision-making you know, as the basis. And therefore, you really have to understand what influences aeronautical decision-making. And the, the FAA has published, it's been out for a long time, Advisory Circular 60-22, entitled Aeronautical Decision-Making. And it's a great read for pilots and mechanics because it really talks about how we as humans make decisions, the different types of personalities that influence decision-making and some of the physiological factors that influence decision-making. But better yet, you can actually use the information in that advisory circular in your own personal day-to-day life in everything you do. You're going to meet aggressive people. It talks about aggressive attitudes and how that has an adverse effect on decision-making and things like that. I think it's, it's very worthwhile. I've tried to incorporate a lot of what has been written in that advisory circular in my day-to-day life as well as my flying. And I use it a lot when I'm looking at the performance of a pilot or a mechanic involved in an accident or, or incident that I'm working on. It's definitely beneficial. And oh, by the way, it's free. All you have to do is look it up on the internet, just like a lot of other information the FAA has published. Yes. And it's unfortunate that it, it's billed as pilot decision-making all too often. And maintenance people just don't go and make that information available to themselves and understand it. Far too many mechanics, I should this some do. It was years before I did before I knew it even existed. So it's not clear. The FAA started down the pathway some years ago to actually clear up some of that, but it seems to have stalled recently. You, you and I have had these discussions over the years, John, that basically everything that happens in the cockpit happens in the hangar. Oh, without a doubt. Everything. Without a doubt. I mean, whether it's you know crew resource management, you have the same application on the Hangar 4, where you and I are having to work as a crew on an aircraft, we have to manage that resource. Fatigue, you know, the uh, the I'm safe, you know, the, the physicality of the person. Are you sick? If, that's, if you are sick, that's going to influence decisions and that kind of stuff. Whether it happens in the cockpit or on the Hangar floor, it is all relevant to flight safety. And I think that a lot of the things, like you said, where we've delineated with the word pilot, it should be with the word airman because mechanics are also airmen. And that way you cover the entire gamut. 
you know, maybe I'm just thinking out loud here, but maybe we ought to do a segment of the show that dealt with the value jet accident in the hangar because it doesn't get the play that and the flavor for what really happened over the 30 days before the events unfolded to cause an accident. And I don't think most mechanics understand what was really going on in that facility at the time. And I know that one of the very few accidents that a lot of work was done inside the hangar by the NTSB. Normally, the hangar, they kick it up to the hangar doors and call it quits. But in that particular case, you were in the hangar quite a bit and interviewed a lot of the people and so on and so on. So maybe uh, we'll, I'll put that on the list of something in the future. And we add to that Eagle Lake, Texas. We can add to that the Beach 1900 up in Hyannis that came out of maintenance yep. with the control cables reversed. There are a number of accidents you and I are both aware of and have actually worked. Chicago accident. There's another one in Minneapolis. I mean, the list goes exactly. on and on. And, yep. and those accidents never got the in-depth review that happens after a accident involving a pilot. So, yep. Exactly. So maybe maybe uh, some of our podcasts may drive uh, the NTSB in that direction. I noticed uh, just today, I think it was this morning, early this morning, that you know we've been criticizing them a bit lately for keeping the investigators at home, even though they've been trained in biohazards and they're well versed in being able to go out and protect themselves against this this virus. They just were doing a their own podcast on investigating in the midst of a, a virus pandemic. Yeah, well, don't, don't get me started because I'm working three accidents that just happened where the NTSB did not show up, and they were fatal accidents. They sent the FAA out. Yeah, so, so the FAA can go up, but the NTSB, whose people are trained in biohazards, they don't go out, and maybe the FAA was trained, maybe they weren't, because they get so much training in type or, or in their own rules that many of them are lagging on the biohazard stuff, especially if investigation's not their primary job. And John, you know the bigger issue, and we talked about it in previous podcasts. The NTSB are the trained investigators, supposedly. Why aren't they out there collecting all the facts, conditions, and circumstances? Because when you send somebody else out, they are doing whatever it takes to get the job done and move on. They aren't doing the thorough and methodical. They're not looking for all the witnesses. They're not getting all the data that's available. And then on top of that, they're moving the wreckage. And by the time the NTSB does decide to go look at it after it's been moved, you've damaged or destroyed all the good stuff. Yeah. In fact, I have long said that if you read enough reports, NTSB accident reports, it doesn't take long before you can start picking out the reports that were done by others as compared to reports done by the NTSB. So there is a certain amount of information gathering that the NTSB will put in the reports that the other entities that do the investigations for them don't put in. Yeah. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I can't wait till you and I are together in the studio because we got so many plans and so many things we want to do. And now we're trying to get real creative, not only with YouTube, but maybe with webcasts and webex meetings and things like that so i'm looking forward to us getting together so that uh, we can take our show to the next level a lot of folks have been asking us about it we're working on getting there we appreciate as always the comments that we receive this particular podcast was driven by uh, a couple of emails where people had actually asked about this particular accident and john started looking it up and then decided yeah let's do it so I'm glad we got to talk about this because this was a critical accident. We lost a, a very popular senator. It was very tragic. It was very noteworthy at the time. And the recommendations that came out of it did, in fact, enhance aviation safety like we would expect safety recommendations put forth by the board should and, and could do. So we always like talking about these types of accidents to educate so keep the emails coming. You can contact us at Flight Safety Detectives with an S on the end 
at gmail.com. Like I said, John and, and I try to respond. We'll try to respond to the email. And then a lot of times your suggestions uh, end up being the topic of a podcast. So we do appreciate that. And of course, we're always you know, still open for sponsors. Uh, we want to take this show to other places. We want to do live broadcast and things like that but it does take financial resources. So we encourage sponsorship and of course, donations anytime uh, uh, we can get them. So again, we appreciate our listeners. We appreciate your involvement. Please give us a good rating so that we can continue to increase our listenership and uh, definitely tell your colleagues and friends about the show. Cause I know that a lot of folks that I've run into recently have heard about the show or run across the show because of other people. So again, we really appreciate that. So with that, my friend, my flight safety detective partner, I hope you enjoy wherever it is you're hiding in Western Massachusetts. I know you're staying safe because there's nobody probably within a hundred miles of you. So they can't be breathing bad air on you. Right. So. Well, it's not a hundred <laughs> miles, but there's certainly five or six miles. So there's nobody around. It's pitch black here right now. Oh, good. Well, that'll be good for you to go stargazing. So. Yes, it seems like there's a lot more of them out here. Well, that's good. Well, I look forward to talking to you next week when we do our next show. So until then, I'm going to give you our last word. And as always, I ask everybody to fly safe. But this week, you got to fly safe as well. Yep. You know, you've got to take the precautions. You're going to be on an airplane yep. tomorrow morning, so you better make sure that you got precautions i don't want to hear that you got thrown off an airplane because you didn't wear a mask <laughs> yeah well i guarantee you, if i get thrown off an airplane it's going to be a spectacle you'll more than hear about it but uh, i try to keep a very low profile so i appreciate that and i i do intend to travel and fly safe okay till next time to listen to more episodes of the show go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.